Hi, I'm Simon Hartley. And I'm Helen Dunmartin. Welcome back to Pep Talks. Helen, I know you know Justin already, but um, uh, just to give the guys at home a bit of a background, uh, I met Justin a few years ago. Justin is the former executive officer of the Red Arrows and managing director of Mission Excellence and has been helping businesses with exactly these sort of uh, challenges for many, many years. Justin, I know one of the conversations that you and I had a while ago was about how you make really great decisions consistently with imperfect, ambiguous, incomplete information. And how do you do that? Because this is something that lots of people are challenged with right now. Yes, that's definitely becoming a theme of the moment for me. I think there's two aspects to it. There's the sort of tactical bit, which is definitely what I used to do in my day job as a pilot. And then there's a more strategic element, which is probably what I've done a lot more of recently. Now, I think the problem with it, having thought about this issue a lot, you know, reflected on my pilot experience, how it worked in that world. When you have ambiguity and imperfect data, um, it applies, you have to use judgment because you can't get to the answer by some sort of logical process or analysis. You have to use judgment. Uh, and there's a requirement for agility because you're responding to changing circumstances the whole time. Um, so in that situation, you, you have this fundamental problem that there isn't a right answer. And you see at the moment in the sort of shifting government policy that Nobody knows what the right answer is, so we try something and then the thinking changes and evolves. And the problem with judgment is there's always potential for bias in our thinking, because we all think we're great at judgment, but actually we're more biased than we think we are about it. Um, and so yeah, you, you get, I think, two types of bias that are highly relevant here. There's your basic cognitive bias. So we're not as clever as we think we are. Um, and you'll see it with sort of uh, Daniel Kahneman stuff, the uh, thinking fast and slow. Um, whereby we have this automatic response to things. You know, there's the classic one that a lot of people have seen about if a bat and a ball cost a dollar ten, and the bat's a dollar more than the ball, how much is the uh, bat? And you know, the classic answer is, well, it's a dollar, but it's not. It's a dollar and five, and it's the automatic thinking bit. Um, so that's a problem when we apply judgment. That you know, we have these all these heuristics, these automatic processes. We're also wedded to our own brilliance. You know, we all think we're quite clever, uh, and the CIA. Uh, replayed a great experiment on this where they went to a bunch of horse racing handicappers and they gave them a small amount of data on a horse race that had already happened but it was you know in a different country or something and they asked them to predict they gave them really good data but asked them to predict the outcome of the race and then they gave them a bit more data and said what would you change your decision and they did it over about five cycles giving them more and more data um what do you think happened to i'll just i'll throw it back to you simon what do you think happened to the quality of the decision on that one you didn't think you were going to get tested but no no I, my my instinct would be to say that the decisions didn't change as much as they should with the introduction of more information. Yes, I'm going to put that down to your brilliance or the fact that I led you up the garden path a bit to it. Uh, but yeah, what happened was the, quali the, the, the quality of the decision stayed about the same. So the same number got it right and they, they carried on being wedded to the original decision. What changed was their confidence in it, which went off the scale as they got or a lot, not off the scale, a lot higher as they got more data. Um, and so what that showed was that there's a hygiene level below which you're just guessing, but as long as you've got reasonable data, if, you're, if you've only got a bit and you're operating in ambiguity, more data will not necessarily improve the quality of your thinking. It will just make you more confident. And even experts are true of this. There's a guy called Mark Bergman. I've done a lot of work with um, at Imperial College. He's brilliant on this stuff about cognitive diversity and quality of decision-making under ambiguity. Um, and what he, he, he found that expert opinion was highly relevant but the way in which you conduct your group 
to get the opinion matters a lot. So if you just ask, ask a load of experts an opinion, you get the same problem I just talked about. And he did some pretty good experimental work. And what he found was if you've got a group like a board or a strategic decision, the best way to get the highest quality decision and ambiguity out of them is to ask them all the question individually. So get them to come with an independent opinion, then get them to cross-reference it as a group, and in particular the outliers, get people to defend the outlying positions and let everybody understand how they got to those positions. And having had that conversation, then go back and do it individually again. And what he found was in the second round, the group gets um, quite a good, uh, you know, a, a good outcome. And bear in mind, he was doing this in an experimental context where he knew the right answer. So he knew what a good answer would look like. So that methodology worked very well for him. Uh, was proven to work very well. And then the other bit, so the, that's the kind of cognitive bias bit for dealing with ambiguity. Um, I'm kind of making some sweeping <laughs> statements here, big yeah. subject areas. And the other bit, motivational bias, you know, the company that you work in and their culture. You know, a simple example is there's always a tension in some context between operations, making money, and risk in some sense. And those things get very skewed sometimes, and they get skewed by leadership behavior. That what, what is on the agenda of the people at the top of the organization is what's on everybody's agenda. So if we're saying that safety is our most important thing, but we're actually rewarding people for saving money, you will get what you reward, and people will take more safety risks. So, you know, the, these are big problems, um, but this issue of uh, how do you make better decisions around ambiguity, you need to set up your group with a bit of thought um, so that you get the best chance of the, the wisdom of the crowd, if you like. There's a yeah. bit more to the wisdom of the crowd than just the wisdom of the crowd. How you set it up makes a difference. Um, think holistically about the problem. You know, we tend to think in very reductionist, linear terms. We like to apply logical solutions to things, but were there complex system problems? We need to kind of think about it uh, holistically. Um, and ultimately, when you're dealing with people in an organization, you will get what you reward from them. So be very careful what you're rewarding and whether you're actually rewarding objectivity, constructive dissent and challenging and all these sort of things. That would be my worldview on the this bit, sorry. I remember when you spoke to us before, Justin, you, know, you talked about fighter pilots use a simple cycle, plan, brief and execute. And I think yeah. that's exactly what you're saying there. We kind of have to step back and look at what that looks like for the future, especially in this time where we have those, I think you spoke about it, uh, to the known unknowns and what our plan B is. Yeah, exactly. Um, our plan B wasn't yes. on our radar uh, until the beginning of March and now we're, we've moved into our plan B. So how do you execute on that? Change your path quickly and what, what, what are your thoughts on that? So, the first bit I talked about for Simon's question, that strategic bit almost implies there's not too much time pressure. That you can sit in a room, you can convene a number of meetings, you can bounce this around. But for people who are in operations, there often is time pressure. So you need the sort of tools that you're referencing there to actually make decisions under time pressure. And often when they have consequences, you know, if I think back to my previous life, people's opinion of a fighter pilot is formed by the news and Top Gun. Um, neither of which are that relevant, unfortunately. <laughs> I, don't, I didn't get to play beach volleyball once. Um, but the reality of life as a pilot is you're doing something which is intrinsically complicated, uh, lots of moving parts, you control only a small number of variables. So actually, you're doing something tactical that is characterized by ambiguity again, imperfect information, but this time you have to make quicker decisions and the decisions tend to have consequences. 
So some of the key tools, I think, that help with that are, I sort of, back to your point about the, the known unknowns type thing, I think there are three basic types of scenario you face tactically. One is your known knowns, things that you kind of predict. You, you pretty much know they'll happen and more or less what they'll look like and what you should do when they happen. Um, well, you should script those. So what the military would refer to as standard operating procedure. If it's something that comes up a lot and or that you know the answer to, write the script for it. Um, and you might say it's got nothing to do with ambiguity. However, what you're doing there is freeing up your brain power for the clever stuff. You don't want to reinvent the wheel on, with a blank sheet of paper on stuff that you actually do know the answer to. So the stuff that you know the answer to, get it scripted, sort of get it off the table. Um, then you have these couple of more complicated situations. One is your known unknowns. These are things that you could kind of predict, but you don't know exactly what they'll look like, and you don't know exactly when they'll happen or in what combination of circumstances. So you can't, you want to have a plan B, but it's not really plan B, because plan B won't be perfect either. It's some sort of mix of plan B to Z. Um, and the way that the, we would prepare for that in my, my pilot career was through routine contingency planning. That every morning we go to work, we'd have a weather brief, we talk about a technical problem every day. Every time we fly, we talk about something going wrong on the sortie. And what happens with that sort of routine contingency planning and scenario modeling on a small scale all the time is you kind of end up building this mental database of things that might go wrong. And when they do go wrong, you dip in the database. You take something you've already thought about and you fashion it to the situation you're facing. Um, you don't just make it up in the heat of the moment. So you're, you've already done the thinking for the situation you're facing. It might not be quite perfect, but it's better than just making it up in the heat of the moment. Um, and then the final bit is your unknown unknowns, so things that you couldn't possibly have predicted. So clearly that's where we are to a large extent now. Some people have thought about pandemics and modeling, but they're the exception. <laughs> most companies haven't, most teams haven't. Um, and you know you, there is an argument which has been thrown in before clearly you can't plan for that because otherwise you would it's an unknown unknown but actually I, I accept the argument but if that's true then you need you do need something else to fall back on and when i look back on my sort of aviation time what we have for those situations when things go wrong in a way that you couldn't possibly have predicted is absolutely clear simple priorities so if there's no plan and there's no plan b and there's no plan c what are the priorities you know what what's the ball you can't afford to drop and have absolute clarity in those simple things and i would argue that the more complex and complicated your world is the simpler the priorities need to be because you just don't have time for deep rational analysis and meetings and things so to give you an example in aviation the very simple one is aviate navigate communicate as a pilot if you do those things in that order you will not go too far wrong you know aviate means fly the plane no matter what else is going on, fly your plane safely, which kind of sounds obvious and simple, but when there are a thousand things going on and you're in complete overload, if you fall back on that and nothing else, you won't go too far wrong. But again, it is quite difficult to make those things up in the moment. You, you need to know what the priorities were before it happened. But even now, you know, if you're operating in this sort of ambiguity and fog, you could re-baseline the priorities now in this scenario, and that would help people, I think. So there's three kind of basic, script the stuff you can predict, think about the stuff that you kind of can half predict, and have very clear, simple priorities for the unpredictable. I think it's keeping the plane in the air. 
I think for us as you know, businesses at the moment, just keep it, keep it steady yeah. you know, and, and use this time. Um, and I think that's exactly it, isn't it? Keep the plane in the air for the moment and that that, that requires Yeah, so so if I was if I I almost can't help myself here with my consultant's head on. If I was going to drill into that, then the next level of question is, what are the most critical things for keeping the plane in the air? Because mm. there's lots of things we'd like to do to protect ourselves in the future. What are the single, what are the smallest number of most important things? Only do other things after you've done those things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that I- a thousand pounds. <laughs> the other thing I really like about the, um, working with that sort of middle between known knowns and unknown unknowns that that middle ground when you do when you have those conversations the contingency conversations as a team you also build up a common way of thinking and a common way of solving problems um yes. and i think this is critical so that not everybody sort of just dives off in a completely different direction um, with a different view of how to do this mm. we've actually got a frame of reference to work with haven't we? Yeah, absolutely. There's a, a famous Prussian general from the, uh, the 19th century, the 1800s, um, von Moltke. And he was famous for both for being very successful, but also as a thinker and a strategic thinker. And you know, coming up back to your point, one thing that he did is when he got his best graduates from the staff college, so the people who were going to be the senior officers of the future, they basically spent six months on his personal team after the staff college following him round. And that this was not indoctrination per se, this was simply to understand how he and the central organization thought so that when they went out to their jobs and they were doing things without the internet and without mobile phones and faced with situations you couldn't possibly predict, they'd already been deeply immersed in a common way of thinking. Jim, it's your point exactly, Simon, it makes a big difference. Yeah. So yeah. I'll just come back to one other one. I just had one thing, you mentioned about the, the plan brief debrief bit. You know, I was talking more about the decision-making, but in a tactical scenario, almost by definition, the decision-making won't go perfectly because there's so many variables outside of our control. So that feedback loop and the way we debrief then becomes pivotal. Um, you know, open, honest uh, assessment of how our decision-making went and where it got us to that we can then feed back into the plan. And as you know, I could talk about that subject for some time, but the, the basic concept is pretty simple. It's closing off an activity with some sort of, debrief process review process and making that into an actual feedback loop that it feeds back in yeah absolutely so how does all this impact on leadership because you know leadership seems to be the glue that's going to tie this all together yeah so the the strategic thinking bit decision making um clearly it helps if the leadership is good at that and engaged in it but that's almost the more important thing about that is the way you set it up um you know you don't need to be brilliant at it you just need to set it up well um, the tactical bit is highly reliant on leadership because although I talked about some fairly simple tactical approaches and tools to this stuff, you need permission to apply them, which kind of sounds a bit simplistic. But if you're in a very centralized organization where everything has to be approved by 10 levels up, um, that simply won't work, that decision-making cycle that I talked about. Um, and it, it should be self-evident, you can't centralize decision-making in a fast-moving environment. Everything just grinds to a halt. And I think what will happen in this current scenario we're in, that organizations that previously didn't need to be agile, or ones that think they are and aren't, they will be exposed by this. By the tide going out, you know, we'll see who's wearing the swimming trunks. Um, and if the decision-making cycle is slow and it's highly centralized, 
it will be very difficult to react effectively to this sort of scenario we're in. I'll just give you a quick example of this at a sort of corporate level and then talk about it, sorry, at a big level rather than corporate and talk about it a tiny bit more tactically. So in the, the six-day war between Israel and Egypt, and I make no political comment here whatsoever, it's just an interesting example. Um, Israel attacked, uh, uh, they, they initiated the first attack because they thought they were under threat. And they attacked at 7.45 in the morning. It was an air attack. And they, they committed this attack at 7.45 in the morning. It was in 1967, I think. Um, I'll just throw it back to you again. Put you on the spot. Why do you think they attacked at 7.45 in the morning? You guys think you get an easy ride here. <laughs> Why would they have attacked at 7.45 in the morning? Because no one would be expecting us at that, the unexpected element. They all having breakfast. Kind of on the right lines, a bit more specific. Go on, they all having breakfast? Getting very close. So you're, you're pretty much right, um, but it runs a bit deeper in terms of doctrine and how you approach things. So the Israelis, um, culturally, and within the, the military at least, uh, operate in a very agile manner, highly decentralized. Decision-making authority is decentralized to the lowest level it reasonably can be so that people can take decisions uh, faced, you know, according to what they're seeing in front of them. Whereas the Egyptian system at that time was a legacy Soviet system. Uh, the military was very heavy, heavily Soviet supported, and it was a very heavily centralized command and control system. So the Israelis worked out that by attacking at 7.45 in the morning, the traffic in Cairo was terrible. They didn't attack Cairo, but the traffic in Cairo was terrible. And all the generals would be stuck in traffic on their way to work in the Ministry of Defense. And nobody at the bases would make any decisions without asking the generals. No, no, no mobile phones in those days. Um, and so this is an example of this in practice where if people have no permission to make decisions, they don't. If you get told off for a showing initiative or judgment or getting things wrong, um, you don't make decisions. Um, and so the key to this, you know, it's kind of simple. The way to centralize decision-making is empowerment. But we do, you just need to be careful in what that means. It's not delegation. It's not just, oh, it's your problem now. Um, you know, it's a two-way process between the senior person and the person delegating the task where you agree the resources, you agree the limits of the decision-making authority, and then you set the people free within those limits. Uh, I know a guy at a bank who, he was on some deal earlier in his career and he lost 10 million and uh, his dad called his dad his uh, wasn't as bad as that not blatant nepotism his uh, his <laughs> boss called him in and said you know we need to talk and uh, he said uh, he said to me how do you think this will go steve and steve said i think you'll sack me and his boss looked at him and said why would i sack you i just sent you on a 10 million pound training course um, and you know it was quite an enlightened approach and the boss's thinking was uh, actually, I wish you hadn't done what you did. And if I'd known you were going to do it, I would have stopped you. Uh, but he said, actually, this is my problem because I didn't put enough checks and balances in place. And you didn't do anything wrong. You made a decision within the bounds I gave you and it didn't work out. And actually, the problem is mine as much as it's yours. And that's the crux of how it works. And it joins together one of your previous themes, actually, Simon, about um, alignment. That I think, you know, empowerment it doesn't work in isolation you first have to have clarity that everybody understands what the big picture is where we're trying to get to and what the priorities are back to our you know conversation with Helen what are the top level priorities then you need alignment you need to broadly have a similar approach and direction towards those goals and priorities 
And then and only then can you empower people because then they understand how their actions and decision making fit into the bigger picture. This is probably the ideal time because I think um, you mentioned before, Justin, if you don't know where you're going, you don't know which direction to go. So therefore, people in the organization may yes. see things differently with a fresh pair of eyes that as leaders were so busy mm. planning which way to go. And, you know, I think as long as you kind of know which balls you can drop, then actually we're juggling yes. them anyway. So somebody else may see it in a completely different yeah. way and, and really come out and yeah. shine in it, you know. You need the permission to make the decision. Yeah. But before you have that, you need the clarity and the alignment in what the priorities are. What ball? can't you draw mm. exactly. yeah when uh, i know obviously um uh, justin you uh, spoke at a conference that we delivered a couple of years ago um we, and the whole theme around it was how you lead teams into uncertainty i was asked at the end of that to uh, to sum up the themes that everybody had talked about and uh, and i i summed it up as saying you need to align empower and engage uh, your team that's that's essentially the, the themes that mm. i picked up um, and it, it actually drew me back to a conversation I had with um, uh, Jace, who I know you know, who's a, a, another a former Red Irish team leader. Um, he talked about uh, the way that they frame this. Essentially, it's we'll give you the what and the when by you decide the how, um, which is a very simple way of saying you know, yes. we'll, we'll create the, the sort of boundaries through which to operate, but you decide how you're going to do it. Brilliant. Guys, thank you very, very much indeed. Um, this has been uh, fantastically enlightening and, uh, and, and insightful from my point of view. Um, Justin, thank you. Helen, thank you very much. Guys, we'll see you on another episode of Pet Talks. Take care. Thank you.